does location matter? It accounts for or is responsible for more than 350,000 deaths annually in North America. The resources required to implement this are absolutely astronomical. What are your criteria for placing patients on ECMO? 43% had survival to hospital discharge. It's exciting, absolutely. Welcome back to Critical Care Perspectives in Emergency Medicine. This is Mike Winters from the University of Maryland School of Medicine in Baltimore, Maryland. So happy that you're joining us for this podcast. We are going to delve into a perennial hot topic, I think, in emergency medicine, critical care, and resuscitation, and that is ECMO, specifically with some recent articles that have been published in the last three to six months that have improved our knowledge and understanding of the utilization of ECMO in terms of cardiac arrest and massive PE. But before jumping into our educational discussion this month, I'm gonna bring in two co-hosts this month. So Dr. John Greenwood, Dr. Peter W. Dr. Rob Rodriguez is taking a break from this podcast. He is attending to some important issues that he has going on with his hospital. So John and Peter, thanks so much for joining me for another great discussion. Absolutely. Thrilled to. Yeah, excited about this week. Well, John, this is in kind of your wheelhouse in terms of the cardiac ICU that you work in, and we're going to be touching on ECMO. And the first article I want to review is something that many of you probably have heard about, and that's the ARREST trial that was published at the end of 2020 in Lancet. Lead author was Yiannopoulos, and it's titled Advanced Reperfusion Strategies for Patients with Out-of-Hospital Cardiac Arrest and Refractory Ventricular Fibrillation, a Phase two single-center open-label randomized controlled trial. And in essence, to set the stage for the ARREST trial, recall that a common figure that's bantered about in the literature with respect to out-of-hospital cardiac arrest is that it accounts for or is responsible for more than 350,000 deaths annually in North America. When we take a look at the subset of patients that survive out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, many of those, in fact, up to 80%, present with an initial shockable rhythm. And of those patients, in terms of ones that present with refractory ventricular fibrillation that is unresponsive to standard ACLS treatment, over 50% of those patients with VFib, in fact, present with refractory VFib. And that simply is defined as when a patient fails to convert or achieve ROSC after at least three shocks when they're in VFib. As I mentioned, many of these patients do have coronary artery disease and potentially a lesion that needs percutaneous intervention. Now, many facilities around North America, many across the world, have implemented ECMO programs and many of those have put in place eCPR programs using ECMO for patients presenting with out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. Yet still today, there remains some limited evidence that demonstrates significant or increases in survival in the out-of-hospital cardiac arrest population. So overall, what were Dr. Yiannopoulos and his colleagues, his research investigators, looking to evaluate here in the ARREST trial? Well, they wanted to compare survival to hospital discharge between emergency department-based standard ACLS resuscitation versus what they termed early ECMO-facilitated resuscitation. So, John, take us through the study. What exactly was it? 
Yeah, absolutely, Mike. So I think one of the things that's really important for anyone who's reading through this manuscript to keep in mind was that this was a small randomized control trial. It's actually a phase two single center trial, obviously open label. Everyone knew whether or not you were on ECMO. The group was trying to determine if this was able to be done safely, efficaciously, and really if it was possible you know, with this randomized trial design. Now, this wasn't just a matter of deciding whether or not someone's going to get ECMO for out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. They kind of stacked the cards to be in their favor in the patient population that they chose. But they also did something that was really smart. And I think for a lot of clinicians, this can be really challenging, particularly in an urban environment. So this was done at the University of Minnesota and their medical center that was done in conjunction with three EMS groups that were basically proximate to the hospital. So Dr. Yiannopoulos, Dimitri, and his group, Jason Bartos, and a few others, they really worked closely with their EMS groups to make sure that everyone understood kind of the goals as well as what was potentially going to be happening during the course of the patient's resuscitation. So in terms of their inclusion criteria, they considered eligible patients, anyone who is age 18 to 75 years old, that their out-of-hospital cardiac arrest initial rhythm was likely a cardiac cause being a VF or pulseless VT rhythm, that they got three defibrillation attempts and still did not have ROSC. They needed to be able to fit the patient on a mechanical CPR device. They chose the Lucas device. And then the transport time had to be short, so less than 30 minutes away from the ED. So if they met those inclusion criteria, they went and checked on to see if there are any exclusions that were basically they had continued ROSC within the first three shocks. So maybe the patient was only arrested for a very short period of time. They were still in that electrical phase of cardiac arrest and they got defibrillated out of their VFib and were back to a regular rhythm. Patients who were do not resuscitate, later found to be DNR patients, were obviously excluded. Trauma patients, so blunt or penetrating trauma. So this was a medical cause cause for arrest, drowning, respiratory arrest from overdose, pregnancy, prisoners, at-risk populations, nursing home patients, and then patients who had a likelihood of survival that was poor regardless if they were to survive their cardiac arrest. So terminal cancer, active hemorrhage or GI bleeding, as well as those who were unable to get contrast allergy because they incorporated angiography in their post-cardiac arrest care. So what were the interventions? Well, they basically started off with standard ED ACLS resuscitation. So the patients who were eligible, they were taken to the emergency department. And if they were not in the ECMO arm, they were resuscitated with standard routine ACLS guidelines for at least 15 minutes after arrival or at least 60 minutes from the 911 call itself. The declaration of death of the patient was basically given to the emergency physician to decide upon based on their clinical judgment. If ROSC was achieved in this standard group, the emergency physician transferred the patient for angiography, angioplasty, and circulatory support based on what they would normally do at their institution. And again, this is for primary VT or VF arrest. So a stronger indication for emergent angiography, unlike what we've kind of moved to for all comers of cardiac arrest, which is maybe more urgent or elective angiography down the road. 
So how about for the ECMO arm? So if the patient was randomized to the ECMO arm, they were taken directly to the cath lab regardless of the presence of pulses on arrival of the hospital. And this is a really important point because basically they were taken almost to basically an operating room where a controlled setting for procedural management with a small group of people could take place. Initially on arrival, the patients during the resuscitation had a blood gas drawn and they basically stopped resuscitating the patient if their end tidal CO2 is less than 10, indicating either maybe poor quality of CPR or, as we all know, a poor likelihood of survival, a low PaO2 of less than 50, or a lactate greater than 18. If none of those were met, then the patient was effectively cannulated and placed on uh, peripheral VA ECMO. An emergent angiogram was performed and revascularization was completed if it was in fact indicated. So all patients who survived to admission were treated in a dedicated cardiac ICU and uh, post-ROSC care was not protocolized. So it was left to the discretion of the clinicians in the cardiac ICU. Now, they did state that most patients received 24 hours of targeted temperature management, early head CT, continuous EEG, and a decision with neuroprognostication at 72 hours. With that in mind, so the outcomes that they were looking for were, there were a couple. There was the primary outcome, which was survival to hospital discharge, so just survival. And the secondary outcomes were survival and functionally favorable status at hospital discharge three months and six months with a modified Rankin score of three or lower. And then certainly they were keeping track of any adverse events that occurred. So primary outcome was just survival, but certainly as secondary outcomes, they were looking at favorable neurologic outcome, not just in the short term, but long term. So with that in mind, Peter, maybe you could walk us through the results of this paper and what they found. So this is an exciting setup because I think this is a phenomenal, phenomenal study that is pretty intriguing. The study was actually terminated early by the NIH. And so part of the reason is the results. So let's look at these. The patients, 36 patients were assessed, 30 met all inclusion and no exclusion criteria. Standard ACLS group had 15 participants. The ECMO facilitated group, 15. One patient actually withdrew consent. The mean age was 59 years of age. The gender was 83% male. And then the characteristics of the group were very well balanced. The primary outcome, survival to hospital discharge. In the standard ACLS group, 7%. So one out of 15 patients. In the ECMO facilitated group, 43% had survival to hospital discharge. That's six out of the 14 patients. So the secondary outcomes, the cumulative survival, the modified Rankin score, as well as the cerebral perfusion category at hospital discharge, three months and six months. So the standard ACLS group, the one patient who survived, had a modified Rankin score of five and a cerebral performance category of four at hospital discharge and died before a three-month evaluation. So big, big step. Survival at three and six months improved in the ECMO facilitated group. So actually improvement over time. Patients in the ECMO facilitated group had prolonged hospitalization and deconditioning. Not surprised by this. And no, no unanticipated serious adverse events were related to the ECMO group, none observed. So that does leave us with some limitations. And Mike, do you want to go over those? 
Absolutely, Peter. Thanks so much for reviewing the results. And as you let off that section, very surprising in terms of the significant difference between survival to hospital discharge and those that actually were present at three and six months. And that's what led the NIH Data Safety Monitoring Board to terminate the study early, probably raised a lot of eyebrows in terms of terminating the study early after just 30 patients. And I think that's one of the primary limitations that many point to in an assessment overall of the arrest trial here, that it was just 30 patients. It was terminated early. And so if there was a change in outcome of just maybe one or two additional patients, that could have markedly affected the overall results. But that Data Safety Monitoring Board felt the probability of that was very, very low. So nonetheless, small patient number terminated early. And then thinking about generalizability, it's coming from the University of Minnesota Medical Center, a very highly experienced ECMO center, and may not be generalizable to many other institutions that certainly don't have ECMO or have ECMO programs that are in their infancy and not really may have matured enough in terms of processes. Notwithstanding, the patient population, and I think, John, you alluded to this at the beginning, is that these patients... All of them, at least involved in this study, had out-of-hospital cardiac arrest in a public location and actually received bystander CPR. And so just thinking about location, generalizability of this highly specialized center in ECMO, and then attributing that to your local resources, thinking about ECMO, it mainly is a very highly resource intensive therapy. But notwithstanding, I think the author's take-home points and what a lot of people have focused on is that at least in the arrest trial, it is an important trial. It demonstrates that ECMO-facilitated resuscitation for patients with out-of-hospital cardiac arrest and refractory V-fib, so continuing to be in V-fib after at least three shocks, this ECMO-facilitated resuscitation significantly improves survival to discharge and functional status compared with standard ACLS resuscitation. John? Overall thoughts on the arrest trial? Yeah, absolutely. So this is a great example of what a phase two trial actually is. So basically, the goal here is to determine, one, is it possible? And two, is it safe? It certainly doesn't give us what we hope to get to eventually, which is something that's well-powered to determine whether or not we should be moving this towards more of a standard therapy. I do worry all of these like phase two trials, like this is almost like the Manny Rivers effect, right? Like that we saw with early goal-directed therapy, when you have these experts who are actively engaged in their own trial, providing this awesome clinical care, and it's highly coordinated. So it's exciting, absolutely. There's an opportunity here to maybe move the needle in terms of cardiac arrest outcomes that we haven't seen for decades. But, and this is the skeptic in me, just knowing about eCPR programs and how it's performed in our hospital as well as around the country and the world, it's really hard. And whether or not this can be done across the country or across the globe is yet to be seen. Well said. Peter, your thoughts? No, I would agree that this is a limitation of resources. I mean, the resources required to implement this are absolutely astronomical. It's really considerable because it's not just a manpower resource issue, but it's a technology issue as well. Although it'd be wonderful to have this absolutely everywhere, I think you're going to see it at major centers only, particularly to start. Yep, yep. Well, Let's transition to our second article here that we wanted to talk about, hot off the press, that is online, ahead of print, and it also deals with VA ECMO. But rather than 
cardiac arrest patients that are due to coronary artery disease and present with refractory V-fib or pulseless VT. This actually deals with the use of ECMO in massive pulmonary embolism-related cardiac arrest. Lead author on this particular study is Dr. Scott. It's titled, Veno-Arterial Extracorporeal Membrane Oxygenation in Massive Pulmonary Embolism-Related Cardiac Arrest. This was a systematic review that's published online in Critical Care Medicine just a few weeks ago. And to set the background for this particular systematic review, we see a lot of pulmonary emboli. We diagnose it frequently in the emergency department. We care for it in the ICU, in the step down, and perhaps even on the med surge floors. But when we talk about massive PEs, we're talking about probably just 8 to maybe at most 10% of all PEs. And there are varying definitions for massive PE, but the one that's frequently cited by the American College of Chest Physicians is a patient who has an acute PE that sustains hypotension, defined as either a systolic blood pressure less than 90 or a drop in systolic by more than 40 from their baseline for at least 15 minutes, or a patient with acute PE that is requiring vasopressor and or inotropic support. In terms of patients who have massive PE that ultimately leads to cardiac arrest, well, the mortality approaches 100%. And in terms of the utilization of VA ECMO, for patients with massive PE, there's certainly the theoretical benefit that it can unload or offload the RV and potentially prevent cardiac arrest and get adequate or meaningful organ perfusion and tissue oxygenation via the circuit. Now, more recently, European resuscitation guidelines from 2019 do suggest, it's a class 2B suggestion, that VA ECMO be considered for massive PE in the right clinical setting. A little bit more controversial per se with the American Heart Association guidelines and that they continue to recommend thrombolytics in patients with confirmed massive PE as a class 2A recommendation. But all told, the RCTs on VA ECMO in the setting of massive PE or thrombolytics for massive PE are lacking. So that set the stage for this systematic review. And Dr. Scott and colleagues, their objective in doing this was really to explore the role of VA ECMO in massive PE-related cardiac arrest, and then ultimately analyze if there are any predictors of death in these patients. So, John, what was the study? Yeah, so this was a systematic review that included articles that described scenarios of massive PE with cardiac arrest managed with venoarterial ECMO, uh, VA ECMO. And these articles also had to report survival to discharge and had to be in the English language. So really pretty broad inclusion, but this is a very narrow topic. They excluded articles. We don't really know which articles were excluded. They didn't really specify any exclusions here. So probably was not a lot of articles to go through. Now, in terms of the outcomes, the primary outcome was survival to discharge. And then they looked at a few secondary outcomes. In particular, impact of age, systemic thrombolysis before being put on ECMO, ECMO cannulation during CPR or after return of spontaneous circulation, and hospital location of ECMO cannulation on mortality. So does location matter? And certainly they wanted to keep track of any complications. And as many of us are aware that one of the most common complications would be major bleeding, particularly before, during, or after cannulation. So it was a fairly straightforward study. They looked for all the articles they could without having to exclude much and had some pretty basic outcomes. All right. Well, with that, Peter, what'd they find? 
So here are the results for us. Over 77 studies, just over 300 patients at 301. The mean age was 48 years of age. The gender was predominantly females at 63%. The primary outcome, our survival to discharge, 61%. So 183 of 301 patients. Now, what's the secondary outcomes? So we look at the age, three times increased risk of death for patients greater than 65 years of age. So the odds ratio, 3.56. Now, cannulation during CPR, seven times increased risk of death. The odds ratio there, 6.84. For systemic thrombolysis before ECMO, 51 patients received their lytics prior to going on ECMO. 67% survival to discharge in that group. No increased risk of death between those who got lytics prior to ECMO compared to those who did not. Now, six patients had major bleeding events, but all of those patients survived. So where did these people get cannulated? The ED had 35 patients, the cath lab, 15 patients, the ICU, 10 patients, the OR, 10 patients, med surge floor, three patients. So the bulk of these were in the ED. There was no difference in risk of death among those locations. Major bleeding, 21 patients with reported 76% survival. Neurological impact, so our cerebral performance category of one at hospital discharge, 88%, so 53 of those 60 patients. Multivariate analysis, increased risk of death for age greater than 65 years of age, odds ratio, just over three. And cannulation during CPR, odds ratio, 5.67, compared to those cannulated after ROSC. So, Mike, limitations for this study? Well, Peter, those limitations are like limitations of any systematic review and ultimately what that literature search that the authors perform discover and ultimately what those studies that they determine to include in their systematic review. So there's always the possibility of terms of reporting bias in a systematic review, especially I think with ECMO literature, a lot of folks publish positive studies, i.e. the arrest trial that we just went through. In terms of other studies, not surprisingly that there was heterogeneity in many of the clinical variables that they report on that includes heterogeneity with neurologic status at discharge, bleeding rates, duration of CPR, all those things that we think about or talk about in terms of critical components of resuscitation. And then some of those studies really didn't have a lot of detail buried within them on patient-specific conditions, such as did these patients have lots of comorbidities that ultimately may affect their survival. But nonetheless, in what they reported in these 77 studies, a little over 300 patients, a fairly impressive survival to discharge with the utilization of VA ECMO and the management of massive PE-related cardiac arrest. The other thing that they reported in their conclusions were that age greater than 65, as you reported, Peter, and cannulation during CPR seemed to be factors that were associated with increased mortality and may inform many of you that have existing ECMO programs along with ones that are developing them. What are your criteria for placing patients on ECMO? So, gentlemen, I think two articles in the last just few months coming out on ECMO, certainly very favorable, suggesting their use in terms of cardiac arrest resuscitation and along with massive PE-related cardiac arrest. Let me ask for any final thoughts, P. 
Peter, and then John. Yeah, Mike, thanks. I think that this, again, is promising. This is exciting. This is new stuff. But again, we have to fall back to saying, okay, where is this available? Where are these options something that we can quickly do for our patients and we have support for doing this for our patients? I think this is just the tip of the iceberg. I think you're going to see more indications for ECMO in our critically ill patients. Yeah, guys, I think I agree with you know, Peter 100%. And you know, my takeaway from these studies is they are encouraging, I agree. But I also see them as little flags of opportunity here to show opportunities to participate in multidisciplinary critical care programs that starts in the emergency department. These are things we talk about all the time, but all of these patients come through the emergency department, or at least a majority of them. So there's opportunities to really develop our cardiac critical care programs within our hospitals that incorporate not just technologies that were once used by one subspecialty service, but are now being used for a multitude of problems. So for those who are in leadership positions or even just have an interest in resuscitation critical care, these are two papers that give us all opportunity to talk to our colleagues within the hospital to potentially improve patient outcomes. And it might come in different flavors. It's not all going to be the same. There's not one strict protocol here, but at least, like I said, an opportunity to start a discussion that we can translate to improve care for our patients. Great. Summarizing thoughts, gentlemen. I really appreciate this discussion. So insightful. You've brought up many pearls about some recent literature regarding VA ECMO. So my thanks. We'll be looking to get Rob back on the podcast with our next recording. Please send us any comments, any questions that you have regarding what we talked about, regarding the studies themselves. Be happy to get your thoughts. We want to know what your thoughts on the utilization are for VA ECMO in the setting of cardiac arrest, whether it be from coronary disease, or massive PE. With that, we're going to bring this podcast to an end. So thankful that you joined us for this recording, this discussion, and we will talk to you on our next podcast. Bye for now.